Hello and welcome to the Dorkamotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we're going to talk about the inspiring, mysterious, and defiant life story of NASCAR great Mario Rossi, a man who nearly pulled off one of the great upsets in NASCAR history, whose innovations continue to be used in the sport today, and who vanished into thin air in the early 1980s. This is a story of mechanical genius, potentially nefarious activity, and a man who definitely made an impact in the world of stock car racing. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Loans, editor-in-chief of Bankshift.com, lead announcer for the NHRA on Fox, and a guy who has read too many books about cars and racing and who loves the history of this stuff, and hopefully you love it too. This episode is going to be really interesting and cool. Uh, Mario Rossi is a guy who is fascinating on a bunch of levels. He's an innovator in the very truest sense of the word. I think when we talk about innovation in racing and we talk about people who are quote-unquote innovators, a lot of times we use that word as a euphemism to describe somebody who wasn't that successful but who tried a bunch of different stuff, most of which didn't work. That is not what Mario Rossi was or what he is or what his legacy is in racing. Rossi is an inventor, and as you're going to find out as we go through this episode, many of the things he did back 50-plus years ago are still standard operating procedure in the world of NASCAR racing today. So uh, he is an innovator, but a very successful one, and a guy who, as I alluded to in the open of the show, whose uh, end is very unclear, and we'll spend some time talking about that when we get there. But the story of Mario Rossi begins, uh, he's a young man from Trenton, New Jersey. Not exactly the NASCAR, you know, hotbed of competition that one would expect, but that's a fact. That's where he's from. When he's a kid, he gets into cars. He's kind of uh, one of these, you know, self-described, and not even self-described, family-described mechanical geniuses. You know, he can rebuild the family tractor in no time. He can fix the family car by the time he can read, that type of thing. He was one of those intrinsically brilliant mechanical minds. And he was not just a crew chief. He did begin his NASCAR career as a driver. And uh, from 1955 through 1958, he competed in four different events. Now, uh, he was not exactly, you know, burning up the uh, burning up the, the world, you know, NASCAR standings here, but um, in those four events, he actually did record one top 10 finish in 1955 at Langhorn Speedway in Pennsylvania, which is an incredibly dangerous and challenging place to do anything, let alone drive a ramshackle old stock car around. He uh, finished ninth, and that was his kind of career high watermark in terms of his finishing ability. He continued to compete as a driver sporadically through the years um, at Langhorn and at New Oxford Speedway, which is in Pennsylvania. So he ran a total of four NASCAR, what were then known as Grand National Races from 1955 to 58. Um, with that uh, with that top 10 finish at Langhorn being really the only notable one, a couple of finishes in the 20s, 22, 25, somewhere around there. He really didn't have the money to field a top-level car to compete with the likes of the big names of the sport at that time, the Curtis Turners, um, the Lee Petties, the names that were really dominant back then. He did, however, build himself a nice little network of connections. And in 1957, he met a guy named Tom Pistone. And Tom Pistone, uh, an Italian racer from Chicago, another kind of a rarity, a, a north of the Mason-Dixon line competitor in NASCAR during this time in the 50s, was a rare scene and Pistone had been racing in Chicago for Andy, Andy Granatelli for years racing inside Soldier Field where the Bears used to play football they ran race cars in there for years Andy Granatelli made a pile of money promoting races inside Soldier Field and Pistone became one of his uh, favorite sons if you will Pistone was kind of on the ends with, with Granatelli and won a lot of races up there and was promoted and became part of the NASCAR scene now, Pistone, kind of crazy, would compete, would drive from Chicago to wherever they were racing and God knows where in the south every week and then drive all the way back to Chicago for about 10 years before he moved permanently down south. But in 1958, Rossi decides, okay, I'm done being a race car driver. I can't do that anymore, but I am a good mechanic. And hooked up with Pistone, he moves to Chicago and he becomes kind of the uh, lead mechanic. And this was a good arrangement for a very short amount of time. He and Pistone, for reasons that will be common in the career of Mario Rossi, don't really see eye to eye. And finally, he says, you know what, I'm out of here. So 
Rossi really commits himself to this sport and moves to Daytona, Florida, where, of course, um, the greatest minds of NASCAR were, were working and developing technology in the late 1950s. So moves to Florida, um, kind of lives a nickel and dime in his way down there. Um, you know, he ends up hooking up with guys like Smokey Eunuch uh, and others who are based down there in the Daytona area. And um, as he goes, he's kind of learning something from everybody as he's moving along down there in Florida. And ultimately, in the back of his mind, Mario Rossi wants to be a car owner, wants to be a team owner, sees that the guys that own these teams do pretty well. If you can have a competitive operation and you can get some factory money behind you, you're going to make money, you're going to be successful, and ultimately you're going to be able to uh, you know, kind of live the good life. And that's exactly what Rossi was trying to do. So, um, you know, when he moves to Florida, he's a struggling mechanic. He's not making a ton of money. He's just another of these guys, these hopefuls, just like in today's world of racing, another of these kind of hopefuls that is um, that is doing whatever he can to scrape his way by. And the neat thing about what he's learning along the way from the people he's working with, Bill Strope, Smokey Eunuch, etc., is that it will lead him to the next big step in his career. The next big step in the career of Mario Rossi comes in 1964, where he gets a job at Budmore Engineering. Now, of course, we know um, Budmore Engineering, Budmore, one of the great names in NASCAR history, a premier, absolutely premier crew chief, car owner, visionary, kind of understands this sport on a level that maybe others hadn't before him. And he helps revolutionize everything. So working for Bud Moore, Mario Rossi is quickly recognized as one of the sharpest guys in this entire operation. So Rossi's job was to basically oversee the cars of Carl Balmer and Daryl Derringer. Carl Balmer, you may not have heard of him before because uh, he never really did that much. He was not a very well-known racer. Daryl Derringer, if you're a NASCAR fan and, and a fan of the history of NASCAR, uh, Derringer was a great racer and a winner and, of course, had great equipment. The real guy we need to talk about, though, at Budmore Engineering, who was a racer, is a guy named Billy Wade. And this is the first time we see kind of tragedy intertwined with Mario Rossi's life. And we see his response to this tragedy, and it gives us a little window into exactly kind of who we're dealing with here. So uh, Billy Wade and Mario, for whatever reason, the same reason that most people do, um, become fast friends. Um, they have compatible personalities. They have compatible talent levels. They see things the same way. And Billy Wade the, becomes the 1963 Rookie of the Year, uh, racing for Bud Moore. And he and Wade get closer and closer. And until 1964, between July 10th and July 19th, Wade won four straight races. And you think to yourself, well, wait a second, that's only nine days. Yeah, these guys would race dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of times a year, anywhere they could. So Rossi's tuning Wade's car up. Wade wins four races in a row in the span of a week. Um, in the span of 35 starts over the course of like a couple-month period, he has 25 top 10 finishes, and uh, he's the he is a five-time pole sitter in those 35 starts. So this is a guy who has got it. This dude has the gift, and he has the right guy tuning the car. There was a problem, um, and that problem came after the death of another racer at Budmore Engineering named Joe Weatherly, who is a famous racer. So Weatherly dies. Weatherly is a two-time consecutive championship uh, winner in 62 and 63, a NASCAR champion. And then all of a sudden, Billy Wade gets killed in an accident in 1964, and this hits Rossi like a ton of bricks really really hard and so other rather than just mourn Wade um, he actually presses the doctors presses the people to find out exactly what killed him and you know Wade was doing a tire test it, it's so sad you know in racing we have so many people have died and, and if they die during these test sessions and stuff like that you never want to have it happen but it's even more sad perhaps on a day when the track's empty there may not be the maximum number of safety people there. Who knows? But Rossi immediately dives into this situation and decides that he is going to figure out what happened to his friend, and he's going to make it better. 
So in this 1965 interview, Mario Rossi is quoted as telling us, and he tells us how Billy Wade died. Rossi says, Billy Wade died because of his seatbelt. At that time, doctors concluded that the lap belt compressed Wade's intestines and caused them to rupture, the only fatal injury he suffered. Under the impact, the belt became a lethal weapon, noted Rossi back then. Perhaps it was a freak accident, but I don't want it to happen to anyone ever again. Okay, great thing to say, but how do you prevent this particular incident from happening to anybody ever again? Rossi hit the books, literally. He went and studied uh, impact testing from the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, and he went and studied um, the engineering papers that were being developed by the Army and by uh, the aeronautical authorities at the time about pilot safety and securing pilots into their into their planes, which were, of course, we're entering the jet age here in the 1950s Korean War era. And now the 1960s, when we're talking about this, we're definitely in the jet age. So what Rossi does is he adapts some, some aeronautical technology to race cars. And Mario Rossi is the guy that added what we refer to as the submarine belt to a five-point racing harness. Now, NASCAR drivers at that time basically had a belt, like a um, lap belt, and then they had two over-the-shoulder belts that went into that lap belt, but there was nothing to prevent you from sliding out from under it other than your legs or your feet. So this submarine belt that bolted to the floor and came up effectively over the driver's crotch and hooked into the bottom of the latch that the other belts came in now locked you into place and did not allow you to slide down, did not allow that seatbelt to take your intestines and squash them and rupture them and kill you. So that was uh, his first kind of major innovation in NASCAR stock car racing was for safety. And, and the neat thing is this is obviously still being used today, but NASCAR recognized Mario Rossi with an award called the Gray Rock Safety Award, which was a very prestigious thing to get. And what it did really was take Mario Rossi and take him from a guy that everyone knew was pretty smart, everyone knew could build an engine, everyone knew could set up a chassis, and it launched his name singularly up into the stratosphere in terms of the elite brains of the sport. And that is exactly what he was hoping would happen in terms of his career. It is exactly what he needed to move on to the next step. And now it's time for us to go racing with Mario Rossi, no longer as someone's employee, but as a car owner like he always dreamed about. So 1967 rolls around. After a couple more years with Bud Moore, Rossi decides he's going to strike out on his own which he does successfully. He starts his own team in 1967, and he hires a guy named Donnie Allison, who would go on to become one of the great NASCAR competitors of all time, to be his driver. The first race that Rossi and Allison competed at was the World 600 in Charlotte, and they didn't do so great in that first opening stanza, but they did good enough. They finished 26, which, eh, you know, it's kind of a write-off. But the good thing was for this team is that through the 1967 season, they had a modicum of success, enough that Allison was named the Rookie of the Year in NASCAR competition. 1968 was looking like it was going to be full of promise. Allison decides to leave and start his own NASCAR operation, which was kind of a setback for Rossi, but in the face of everything that happened immediately following it, it ended up being a blessing in disguise. 1968, after that great 67 season where Allison wins the Rookie of the Year, Rossi signs his first deal with Chrysler to be a sponsored racer with them. Now, this was not a full deal, but it was good enough to get him on the racetrack for a load of races, and he hired Daryl Derringer as his driver. They competed in a Plymouth, and they did very well. They had a multitude of top 10 finishes, a couple of runner-ups, and... Again, this was the establishment of Derringer, rather of both both Derringer and Rossi, of two kind of big names in the world of NASCAR stock car competition. After the successes of 1968, now with full backing from Chrysler in 1969, he is on the real factory deal now. So he's getting the great parts out the back door. He's getting the engineering support. He's getting the budget to move himself into the elite of NASCAR stock car racing competition. He hires Bobby Allison, Donnie's brother, who again goes on to be one of the greats of all time, to be his driver. Now Rossi uh, because of his newfound status and because of the Chrysler Corporation's emphasis on motorsports at that time, 
becomes a central figure in a film that NASCAR made called The Chargers, which was a look at really the top six teams that NASCAR stock car racing had to offer. I found some audio from this movie, which is really, really good. You can watch it on YouTube. You can go look for it. It's about 25 minutes long, and it was a promotional film, but it gives us some insight into Mario Rossi, and we start to learn about him and hear him spoken about as a top-tier NASCAR racer and owner. Professionals like Mario Rossi, who prepares Charger number 22, the one Bobby Allison wheels. One of the things Rossi did so well is to drill his team on the importance of pit stops. Now, pit stops have always been important in NASCAR racing. The Wood Brothers widely recognized as the people that kind of revolutionized the idea of perfecting the pit stop. Well, Rossi would take his team and drill them like an NFL coach on practicing. And this was also captured in that 1969 film known as The Chargers. The Rossi crew and Bobby Allison worked to shave those precious seconds off their pit stop times. Races can be won in the pits. If a pit crew can change two tires, put in 22 gallons of gas, clean the windshield, and give the driver a coke in 20 seconds instead of 25, it can mean the difference between victory and defeat. Practice makes perfect, and this is just the beginning. You notice any trouble in gas? What was that time on that one? Well, it was, uh, it was 27 something. 27, 20. I love that kind of sound where the guy says, well, that's what we're here for, talking about the fact that whatever they were practicing didn't really go according 100% to plan, so they're still drilling on it. I also love the idea of the announcer saying, and to give the driver a Coke. Like, you know, what, what everything else is going on here. you got to fuel the car, switch the tires, and also you got to get the driver a Coke. The f- film was not made by Coke. It was made by Chrysler, but I just love that, that reference that's thrown in there by the announcer. So this uh, type of drilling, this type of kind of conversational coaching atmosphere didn't end at their shop in Spartanburg in an airplane hangar. It actually translated to the racetrack. And one of the neatest parts of the audio of this film is a conversation between Rossi and his then driver, Bobby Allison, about what was going on at the racetrack. And again, sit back and listen. This comes from the Chargers in 1969. And Mario Rossi constantly working to chop those fractions of a second off Bobby Allison's lap times in Charger number 22. Well, what do you think? Can we uh, pick up another three or four tenths tomorrow? You think? I think fine? possibly we can. Uh, you know, the other day we made some real minor changes and gained an awful lot of speed. And uh, also uh, we made some real minor changes in that. Uh, change the car from loose to pushing. So I think we're getting real close. What do you think about our chances for the pole? The answer to that question was not captured on the audio. So I'm guessing <laughs> I'm guessing Bobby Allison's answer uh, wasn't great or perhaps wasn't exactly what the Chrysler executives wanted to have in their film. Either way, um, I think it's just kind of a neat little piece of uh, audio captured there. And I wish I knew which track it was filmed at. I believe it was Charlotte. I'm not 100% sure on that. But what I do know is that this particular race for, uh, for Rossi and Allison did not end anywhere near the way they wanted. Allison got tangled up with a competitor and ended up piling his charger straight dead head on into a concrete abutment. Allison walked away, but the results and the tone of the end of this film captured perfectly by the announcer here. Mario Rossi will build another winner. Another number 22 charger of red and gold. And of course he did, but that kind of wistful music and the low tone of the announcer that probably smoked four packs of Lucky Strikes a day uh, kind of sets the... Uh, the the final mood of the film, the visual of this is Rossi and Allison walking into this kind of uh, sunset at the racetrack after they've loaded up their, their destroyed race car on the trailer. So that was the 1969 season. The 1970 season um, was notable for a couple of things, not necessarily noted for... Um, they did have success. They won Atlanta. They were runners-up at Riverside. They finished third at Daytona. Um, they were runners-up at Trenton, New Jersey, which was, of course, Mario's home. Uh, in Michigan, they were the runners-up. Dover, the runners-up. Charlotte, Martinsville, the runners-up. Um, and, you know, Charlotte, they raced at multiple times. That, that race that they wrecked in, they finished 39th. 
they were the number two qualifier. They had several pole position qualifying uh, runs in 1970, including Rockingham. They were the number one qualifier. Riverside, the road course in California, and Martinsville, which definitely was one of Rossi's strongest tracks. He knew how to get a car set up for, for Martinsville perhaps better than anybody. The coolest thing that Mario Rossi did in 1970, and again, why we can call him without any sort of contradiction an innovator, is what he did with his team to win the the crew pit stop championship that year. And it was a big deal. NASCAR had a sponsored pit crew challenge every year. And, you know, nowadays pit crew challenges kind of get lost in the mix. It's not that big a deal. It's kind of a sideshow thing. Well, this was a major accomplishment because of how um, intrepid the, the crews attacked, intrepidly, I should say, the crews attacked pit stops to have the best team, to record the best time in this set environment was a huge accomplishment. And it was also something that helped you keep your factory deal because when your manufacturer understood that you were taking this very seriously, you were drilling your team, you were practicing, and you were thinking of ways to be better, um, it, it gave them more confidence and it, helped, it kept them spending money. So one of Rossi's innovations that is still used to this day in NASCAR came from this pit stop competition. What was it? It is simple but brilliant. Mario Rossi was the first guy to ever glue the lug nuts to the wheel to speed up tire changes. And again, if you watch a NASCAR pit stop today, the lug nuts are all glued onto the wheel using, you know, gasket maker, RTV sealant, whatever you want to call it. And they were the first ones to do it because they did it. It sped them up well ahead of anybody else. No one else had even thought about this idea. So rather than a guy fumbling with five loose lug nuts and trying to get them onto the studs and then run them in with the zip gun, they were already there. The tire changer could sling the wheel onto the axle and then zip all five lug nuts down in no time flat. This was the era of NASCAR where guys were using pump jacks still to get the car off the ground, and you only had one pump jack per side. So um, for him to do this, change the game, and going forward... Every single team started doing this at like the very next race, and they still do it today, what is the equivalent of a half a century later. Mario Rossi's innovation of gluing the lug nuts to the wheel are and stands as perhaps a small accomplishment, but one of the neatest ways to speed up a NASCAR pit stop that had ever been devised, and it is still in use today. So that's 1970. We're going to devote some good time here to a single race in 1971. But we have to talk about the conditions of this race and how Mario Rossi nearly pulled off one of the greatest upsets in the history of American racing competition. And once again, he did it with brains, a defiant attitude, and the guts that had defined his whole career. from the Daytona International Speedway. Today on ABC's Wide World of Sports, the 13th running of the Daytona 500. I'm Keith Jackson. We have 40 cars sitting on the starting grid just about ready to bolt off, chasing some $200,000 in prize money. Ah, Keith Jackson, one of the great voices in American sports ever. Doesn't matter what you're talking about. We're talking about NASCAR racing, college football, baseball, you name it. Keith Jackson's the man, a guy that I idolize in my own career. So... This is the 1971 Daytona 500. Now, if I sound like I'm amped up a little bit here, it's because I am, because this is the high watermark of Mario Rossi's absolute badassness as a crew chief, as an innovator, as a thinker. We have to talk about the scene of the 1971 Daytona 500 before we get into why Mario Rossi uh, did what he did and how he did what he did and how it almost worked and kind of did work at the same time. 1971 was a very traumatic year for NASCAR, and it started out pretty bad, at least on paper. The reason is the manufacturers all pulled their support after 1970. This was the era when safety became real big. The EPA started coming up. Performance was starting to kind of peak. Performance did peak in 70. By 71, things had started going the other way. So it was no longer about racing for these manufacturers. Ford bailed out. Then it was uh, Dodge. Chevrolet really didn't have a presence as far as a factory officially. Um, and for 1971, the Dodge contingent took all of their sponsorship money and took it all away from everybody but Richard Petty. They fielded two cars out of Petty Enterprises, and they got all the NASCAR money, which meant that Mario Rossi, after a couple years of being a dutiful soldier for the NASCAR series, um, was unfortunately stripped of that financial support, stripped of that financial blanket. And as we'll find out, 
it really his his career peaked at this race and we'll go down the road about that a little bit later other things to think about in 1971 the fact that bill france had banned the wing cars remember the aerodynamic cars that were built by the different companies the torino talladega most famously the plymouth superbird and the dodge charger daytona the cars with the slanted nose and the big giant wing in the rear they were the aero warriors the winged warriors you can come up with whatever name you want but these cars were built specifically to go nascar racing and bill france had seen the escalation of performance of cost of engineering going in and decided enough was enough so the wing cars were not banned for 1971 but they were hamstrung to the uh for engine choice to the point that well bill france didn't think anybody was dumb enough to show up with one bill france didn't know mario rossi that well what bill france did in the rules was he said anybody can race anything they want you can race a wing car you can race a full-bodied car do whatever you want if you're racing a full-bodied car, you have a 430 cubic inch displacement limit. If you're racing a wing car, you have a 305 cubic inch displacement limit. Now, you don't have to be an engineer or even a huge racing fan to understand the absolute kind of uh, disadvantage a small block-powered car would have on a super speedway against big block powered cars we're talking boss 429 ford engines we're talking chrysler hemis we're talking big block chevrolets and then we're talking the ability that if you wanted to you could come with a 305 cubic inch engine the 305 cubic inch designation was likely used because that's what trans am was running at the time they were all 305 inch small block engines now, in Trans Am, it was road racing. You went up, you were shifting, you're turning, you're braking. The engines don't spend that much time at peak RPM. Well, on the high banks of Daytona, the engine spends the entire time at peak RPM, turning these big revolutions. Now, if you are got a big block car, maybe it's turning 8,000 or better along the straightaways. So the other thing that Bill France instituted for 1971 was the restrictor plate. The 1971 Daytona 500 was the first race in NASCAR history to use a restrictor plate. And those were only required on the big engines. If you were some lunatic that wanted to show up with a small block engine, you didn't need a restrictor plate because, frankly, you had no chance anyway, so why make a bad thing worse? So the big engines had the restrictor plates. Factory support has been pulled. If there is a bright spot for NASCAR in 1971, it is Winston. R.J. Reynolds Tobacco came into NASCAR with a splash in 1971, taking over the points fund and what would then become the NASCAR Winston Cup points or the NASCAR Winston Cup stock car racing series for the better part of several decades before the U.S. government changed advertising laws and forced tobacco out of racing. That's a whole different show for a whole different day. So now that we know the scene, we have the Daytona 500 in 1971. We have the rules changed so you can run a wing car if you want with a small block in it, or you can show up with a more square, less aerodynamic, brick-shaped car that is powered by one of these big, hairy engines. But those big, hairy engines have to run a restrictor plate. I mentioned that Mario Rossi is defiant. He is furious at Chrysler for pulling their money furious he did a good job for them he raced well they won races they placed well they won the pit crew championship in 70 they did all the right things except retain the contract so what does rossi decide to do well rossi does the math again this guy's brilliant and he decides that yes in fact you can be competitive with a small block engine at the 1971 daytona 500 so that lunatic that deranged person i talked about that thought they had a fighting chance to do this well, his name is Mario Rossi, and he shows up with a 1970 Charger Daytona that is packing a 305 cubic inch small block Chrysler engine. This engine is built by Keith Black, who is a famous drag racer. Keith Black is very well known in drag racing, very well known in boat racing, is not really known at all in stock car racing. I mean, he's known in motorsports, but this is not a guy that, uh, that anybody talks about building stock car engines. He provides a de-stroked 340 that measures 305 inches to Mario Rossi. They put the car in, they put the engine in the car, and the guys on the team nicknamed this engine the lunchbox because it was tiny. You know, Chrysler Hemi is a big, huge engine. This this little Chrysler small block is tiny. And part of the reason that this idea just about succeeded was that small size. 
So let's talk a little bit about race car engineering at this time. These cars are still pretty basic, but the physics that apply to race cars today certainly still applied to all the race cars in 1971. So what you have is you have an engine that is going to be way down on horsepower as opposed to the big engines, but not that much further down than one would expect because of the restrictor plate. So the restrictor plate is going to take power away from the Boss 429 and from the Hemi. So they're not going to be as strong as they would be. Still an advantage, though, with that big cubic inch and the fact that you don't have to turn the engine as hard to go as fast. The other thing to think about is this. A Boss 429 weighs 680 pounds. A Chrysler Hemi weighs about 780 pounds. A small block Chrysler, like the one in front of Mario Rossi's Daytona, weighs 525 pounds. So he is 250 pounds better than the Hemi, and he's about 150 pounds better than the Boss 429 as far as the weight goes. It's also a smaller engine, so you can set the engine a little bit further back in the chassis. These are two subtle things that make a huge difference. Oh, by the way, that reduced weight also saves your tires. That reduced engine displacement saves your fuel. So Rossi is going on a couple of bets here. He's going, he's betting that Keith Black can build him an engine that's going to turn about 10,000 RPM for hours on end and not blow up. He's betting on the fact that his fuel economy is going to buy him maybe another 20 miles per tank than other racers will get, thereby lessening the amount of pit stops he has to make and allowing him to place those pit stops at more advantageous times. And he's also betting that tire wear is going to be reduced. So maybe one, maybe two of his pit stops over the course of the race will not include a tire change, which again saves a massive amount of time. Even with the innovations he's made in pit stops, he is in his head doing this math. Now the other thing to think about is drafting. Drafting was discovered, quote-unquote, by Richard Petty in the 1960s. And it becomes vitally important when you have cars that have no aerodynamic ability. So the cars that will be racing against this wing car are highly unaerodynamic. They're awful as far as getting through the air. So they're going to be dependent on the draft to get things done. The Daytona, because of its more aerodynamic nature, is not a great car to draft behind. That big wing, the more sleek body, it doesn't quite break the air as wide as the other cars do. So these advantages, well esoteric on paper add up to what he thinks will be a competitive package and boy was he right so we're going to go back the audio you heard was keith with keith jackson was the open of the broadcast of the 1971 daytona 500 and we're going to mix in some other audio here as we talk about this race so it's keith jackson and the legendary chris economaki perhaps the greatest auto racing journalist in American history. They are the two guys that were the reporters for the 1971 Daytona 500. The driver for Mario Rossi was a man named Richard Brooks. Bobby Allison had left to start his own operation. Brooks comes in to drive the Charger Daytona and to drive for Rossi for the 1971 season. So let's hear the introduction of Richard Brooks. Richard Brooks, who will be driving the only winged car on the track. We'll define that for you a little later. Oh, and they certainly would define that for us a little bit later. As the race goes on, we begin to see that this little wing car actually seems to be competitive. Why? Remember the restrictor plate. It's expected to be one of the most competitive 500s we've had in some time because you have the unusual factor of a race car with a governor on it, Chris Economaki. That's right, Keith. Uh, only one car in the 40-car field has not a carburetor restrictor plate. Richard Brooks in the wing Dodge, he's got a tiny little engine. The speeds are down from past years. The fans don't seem to mind because the field is bunched. A close, hard-fought race is looked for. And that's really exactly what the world got, that close, hard-fought race that Chris Economaki talked about. It was a precursor to what we expect out of NASCAR races today, where it is pack-style racing. These groups of cars that are racing in groups of five, six, seven, eight, very tightly bunched together, running around the racetrack. There's lead changes, and there was like 20 lead changes in the first like 40 laps of this race. It was an incredible event, and it really kind of changed the face of stock car racing and how things happen. Remember and maybe not remember, educate you a little bit here, before the restrictor plate era happened, it was not uncommon for uh, guys like Richard Petty to be winning races by multiple laps over the second place finisher. 
it was to the point where um, the haves were just destroying the have-nots to a point where Big Bill France understood he had to do something. And the restrictor plate was the answer, and, and it still is the answer today. Whether it was the right one or not, that's your own opinion. But the restrictor plate changed the face of this style of racing. So Richard Brooks qualified eighth in this small block-powered car, and, and people weren't snickering at it, but people were going, well, that's fine. You know, I get it. It's light. It's set up pretty good, but there is absolutely no way that Brooks is going to be able to hang in there for 500 miles with this tiny little engine that is, again, on the straights, going to be turning something like 10,000 RPM. It's crazy. It can't work. Oh, it worked. Listen to this. And the wing car shows for the first time in the top four. Richard Brooks with that little 305-inch engine Dodge, the slope nose winged car, the engine penalty not being too difficult. And here's Brooks now up into second place, and the fans are rooting for this little car they call a mini-motor. Goes down underneath and takes the lead, and is everybody yelling now? Everybody was yelling, especially the crew of Mario Rossi, who was seeing his vision come not only to fruition, but come to succeed. This car would lead five laps over the course of the race. Now, the problem was that it did not have the grunt. when Once they came out of the corner, it didn't have the grunt to hang in there in the straightaway. So it was almost like a road race where you have a heavy, uh, very powerful car that's able to dominate on the straightaways, but the light car catches it and passes on the corners. And that was what was happening here during the course of this event. And it didn't just happen once. Now, the, the laps that Brooks led were not consecutive laps. He was hanging in there like he was in position to win this race. I mean, he was doing well. The wide world of sports coverage of this event was not end-to-end. -end. It was not live. It was not every single lap. So what you get is kind of a, um, let's call it a... Um, a deluxe highlight package where they would pick the, the big moments. They would join and rejoin the race at different points. But, um, the story starts to get very interesting here because now we're very late into the race and this guy, Richard Brooks and this little engine are still hanging in there. Look how close they are, and he's running right along with Baker in the fight for second place. That's been the story of this race. Look at this traffic in the wing car. The little 305 Dodge is staying right there. He's been in front a couple of times and is holding his own very well, but he has forced the draft. He, he cannot do it alone. Conor Mackey's words were 100% true. He is forced to draft. He cannot do it alone. And that goes back to the, the kind of grunt power that this engine lacked. It was unbelievable the job that that Keith Black did with this engine uh, obviously employing every single trick he had in the book to build this little wedge small block that would live uh, for for this amount of time with these giant RPMs and Richard Brooks talks about it and had and did talk about it during his life that he would look down and see 9500 RPM at the start of a straightaway and he would see 10,000 RPM at the end of a straightaway and even he was kind of wincing at times going oh my god like how long is this going to last and as it turns out the engine wasn't the problem problem here. The engine was not the problem. What ended up being the problem was the fact that Brooks had to race this car as he did. He had to be tucked in with everybody at all times. And when you spend a lot of time tucked in tight with everybody, as we know with modern NASCAR racing, especially at a place like the Daytona International Speedway, there is one outcome that we see year after year at that race. And unfortunately, it befell Richard Brooks here. Richard Brooks now up there battling for first place. Remarkable uh, combination of car and driver doing a fine job at AJ. Oh! That's Brooks and Hamilton. Wow, AJ Foyt went by Brooks on the inside, so close that the draft upset the uh, traction of the number 22. He bobbled, Hamilton was so close that he tapped him, and now they're both proceeding slowly around the track with damage to their cars. Not bad, however. Not bad, however, says Chris Economaki, but when you're a guy contending for the lead, you get nerfed. Basically, as Economaki, I believe correctly said, having watched the replay a hundred times, it does appear that when Foyt went by, and this happens a lot in stock car racing, especially back then with how bad aerodynamically the cars were, uh, it upsets the car. It loosens the car up a little bit, and as it begins to turn sideways, Pete Hamilton, who is tucked in right next to Brooks, gets into his door, and the two of them slide down onto the apron of the racetrack. Neither car is totaled. Brooks got the least of it. He His door was kind of crumpled in and stuff like that, but he had to make a pit stop. And as we see and hear, I should say, as we hear in this clip, 
that brings us really to kind of not the end of the day, but the nearing the end of the story at the Daytona 500 for 1971 for Mario Rossi and Richard Brooks. Things were not exactly rosy when the thing got back to the pits. Now here comes Brooks. Let's take a look at his car and see how much damage he sustained in that bumping incident. He's damaged on the left side, so again, it becomes a question of whether or not the aerodynamics will be affected, but both cars will continue to run. We'll be back in a moment. The car did go back on the racetrack. The car did complete the race. The car finished seventh. He qualified eighth and finished seventh. And the honest answer is, had not that incident happened with A.J. Foyt, we'd be talking about Richard Brooks as a top three finisher in that race and potentially even a winner. I mentioned that this is the high watermark of Mario Rossi's stock car racing career, potentially the high watermark of his life. It was proof positive of every bit of genius that the guy had in him that he was able to do this and do it successfully. The 1971 season would not continue with that same level of notoriety for Richard Brooks and for Mario Rossi. Other than a runner-up finish in Columbia at Columbia Speedway, their best other finish was a couple of top tens, kind of a throwaway four at Martinsville, as they always did. But 31st, 21st, 10th, 11th, just not the big numbers that they had generated years before. And it wasn't Brooks's fault. We look back and see what happened to the race car. They had rear end failures and drive shaft failures and an engine failure. They did not run that small block again. That was the only time the small block ran, the only time the Daytona ran, and it was the last wing car to ever run in a NASCAR race. Following the 1971 season, Mario Rossi's life did not have an upward trajectory. He closed the team went bankrupt, and disappeared from the sport for a couple years. When he came back, things got interesting, and then things get downright weird. So when we talk about the end of the 71 season and kind of the end of Rossi's real major role in the world of stock car racing, we have to bring up the fact that he does close the shop, sells everything, uh, mentioned the fact that he went bankrupt, and he gets a job working for Goodrich Tire as the kind of uh, leader of a team that runs the 12 Hours of Sebring, the sports car race that year. That was that was uh, not the most successful effort ever. Not a whole lot to talk about there. 1973, a team in NASCAR starts called Diegard Racing, and this was where Daryl Waltrip's career began as a professional stock car racer. 1973... Uh, Brooks is hired as the team manager for this organization, and it was about this time where um, cheating in NASCAR has always been a thing, and cheating in NASCAR began to have a little bit different connotation in 1973 than it did earlier. Nitrous starts to be used, and Donnie Allison drove a little bit for Diegard, and there were rumors that they had Nitrous on this car, that they would hide it up under the dashboard in different places, and it is, it is a, a situation where... Um, that one apparently was kind of looked over, but Daryl Waltrip was not exactly the favorite son of NASCAR. He was loud. He was brash. He changed the game in terms of driver personality, being outspoken, and kind of being um, the man that Cale Yarbrough would call Jaws because he talked so much. 1976 at the Daytona 500, they have nitrous oxide hidden in Daryl Waltrip's car, and they have it hidden in one of the wedge bars, a suspension piece in the car. It's a hollow tube that they have pressurized with nitrous. Daryl Waltrip uses it to qualify and NASCAR drags the car in for inspection. The car hadn't been that fast and all of a sudden it picks up a lot and they had their suspicions. So Big Bill France is with Rossi, is with Waltrip and says, we know you're cheating and we're going to cut every bar out of this car until you tell us where and how you're doing it. And Rossi kind of uh, is standoffish at first and then as it appears they're serious going to cut this car up, he gets very nervous that someone's going to cut this tube open and it's going to explode or there's going to be some sort of really bad thing that happens. So Rossi admits to it. Waltrip's runs are thrown out and Rossi is um, about basically immediately dismissed as the team manager for Diegard Racing. This is where he really hits the skids. Uh, once again, he has no money. He's bankrupt. He's out of the sport. He is... Um, a wayward guy does not really know what to do how to do it and ends up um 
basically ends up working building offshore boat racing engines. Now, if you know anything about offshore boat racing and really any motorsport during the 70s and then through the 80s, especially, well, well, especially all of them, um, drug money, big, big deal back then. And boat racing, probably the sport that was most infested with it. Now, there was no motorsport out there that was immune to the world of drugs, whether we're talking about drag racing, where uh, people were transporting drugs around the country in their trailer, whether we're talking about um, uh, sports car racing, IMSA was uh, lovingly called the International Marijuana Smuggling Association <laughs> at one point. Um, and so boat racing, because most of it was based in South Florida and because of the fact that um, it was such a huge money, kind of very um, ostent uh, ostentatious kind of sport, um, the, the drug money was flowing like wine during that era. So this is where Mario Rossi's life gets very strange, okay? What happens here is that Rossi becomes involved with a lot of different individuals who are moving drugs. Now, there is no 100% concrete proof of this outside of the fact of some statements that his daughter made during an interview in 1998. His daughter, uh, who then was named Tina Grimes as she had been married, was quoted in the Spartanburg Herald Journal about a story regarding her dad saying, he was involved in drugs then because I walked in on a few too many deals. They'd be using the scales to weigh out the drugs, but I really have no idea what they were doing with it. What they were doing with it was smuggling marijuana, and they were doing it in massive quantities. Mario was friends with a guy named Gary Ballou, who is one of the great short track racers of all time, who wanted to race at the cup level very badly, and who became one of the country's largest marijuana smugglers. And this was an operation that went on for a couple of years until 1982. And on February 18th, 1982, 60 people, I should say 65 people, were arrested, including some of Mario's best friends. They were, invest they were arrested by the feds. Billy Harvey involved in NASCAR, Pee Wee Griffin involved in NASCAR. They were the ringleaders of this massive smuggling operation. A guy named Herbert Tillman was arrested, another NASCAR guy. Pete Tiger Pistone, we talked about Pistone at the beginning of this story, the guy that got Rossi kind of uh, out of Trent, New Jersey and into the scene. He was arrested, and Gary Ballou was arrested. And Gary has talked extensively about this period of his life. He spent 45 months in federal prison. He's never named any names. He has maintained the anonymity of most of the people he was involved with. But those five guys plus 60 others were arrested on federal drug smuggling charges. Now, this is February 18th, 1982. Now, if we move ahead into the next year, into 1983, we have a very sad and completely mystifying story to round out the life of Mario Rossi. 1983, he goes home for Christmas. He visits his family in the Trenton, New Jersey area, and he spends time with them. And this is Mario Rossi's brother explaining the last time he saw his family member. The last time I was in my brother's presence was December 28, 1982 for the Christmas holiday at my mother's home in Trenton, New Jersey. Mario was driven by family members on December 29th or 30th to the Philadelphia International Airport at 9 a.m., give or take a few minutes. He waved goodbye from inside the terminal, changed airline tickets, and was never seen again by the family. I tried to reach him in the Bahamas on January 1st to wish him a Happy New Year, but there was no answer. It is two days later on January 3rd where the family phone rings at the Trenton, New Jersey area location where Mario Rossi's mother lives. On the other end of the phone is a woman who claims her name is Betty, gives only that information, and she tells Mario's mother that he died in a plane crash off of the coast of the Bahamas. Rossi was a very experienced pilot, as most NASCAR guys of the era were. They would fly small planes to a lot of the races, a trend that, of course, continues today with planes and helicopters for stock car racers. So the family kind of takes this at face value, and then they start to get kind of interested in what this could possibly be. They start doing some research. There's no FAA report of a plane crash. And then as time goes on, they start to learn that the, the airplane that Rossi was flying had been sold three times since 1983. The plane had never crashed. It still existed. It was still around. 
and this added more layers to the mystery. They contacted the federal marshals, and the federal marshals wouldn't really give them any information. They would say that they couldn't confirm or deny the fact that they had been involved with Mario Rossi. They couldn't really give them any information in terms of where he was, who he was, or whether he was part of an ongoing investigation. This is the very strange end of Mario Rossi's trail. Some of the family believes that it was the drugs... Some of the family believes it was the underworld connection to the drugs that did him in, maybe made the wrong person angry, and maybe ended his life in that way. But there is also a persistent feeling that Mario Rossi went away by himself, simply disappeared, maybe made himself go away. In 1983, you could get away with it. It wasn't like there was a lot of technology that was around for tracking people down at that point. You could move to a remote place, a quiet place you had never been, a place where stock car racing wasn't popular, a place where there weren't that many hardcore fans that would remember a crew chief that had been out of the game for a few years, and you could make yourself into a new person, almost a self-imposed witness protection program. There's an element of people that believe he was in the witness protection program, but the downside of that theory is that in order to be in the witness protection program, you have to be a witness. And he never was appeared in any trials. His, his name does not appear on documents. Is it possible that the federal government had him under very deep cover, had him covered up because they were afraid of the implications of what would happen if he was exposed? Maybe. But that theory doesn't hold a lot of water because even when we talk about nefarious mafia members like Sammy the Bull Gravano, who went into witness protection... You simply had to testify first. You had to sit there in the stand and give your testimony, and then the federal government would make you disappear and give you a new name and move you to a new place. He never did that. The family has kind of ended on the idea that he was very ashamed of what he was doing, was ashamed that he had been out of the game, was ashamed that he'd never get back in the game, and he hung up his spurs, and that was the end of that. It will be very interesting over time to see if anything else ever comes out about this case. It's so fascinating to me that this guy never went back to a racetrack or never went back to a place where somebody would have recognized him or seen him. This isn't a situation where over the course of time he has resurfaced here or there. People have spotted Mario Rossi at this event or at that event or they've you know, randomly run into him at a coffee shop. He, after that Christmas trip, disappeared Every trace of him disappeared off the face of the earth, never to be seen or heard from again. So there you have it. Not the happiest story, but certainly one of the most interesting stories in NASCAR history. A man that was an innovator, a safety innovator, a pit crew innovator, and of course a man who was so defiant that he ran right in the face of Big Bill France, flaunting his own rules at the biggest race the NASCAR series had in 1971 and continues to have today. Thanks for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast. We'll be back with more soon, whether it'll be about a race car, a cool machine, or a disappeared race car crew chief. Well, that's up to me. The next topic is one I promise you're going to love. Thanks for tuning in and listening to the Dorkomotive Podcast. Spread the word. Tell your friends. If you know somebody who loves racing, who loves racing history, who loves interesting people, the people that make up the tapestry of the world of motorsports, tell them to listen too. We'll see you next time. I'm Brian Loans, and I appreciate your time.